0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and today I'm very pleased to say that we have Dan Cloud on the show, and we'll be talking about his fascinating book, The Domestication of Language, Cultural Evolution, and the Uniqueness of the Human Animal. This is something that, in my own investigations of the history of communications uh, I have uh, touched on and I've read a little bit about. So I was very eager to uh, read the book and talk to Dan when I saw that it had come out. So, Dan, let me say thank you for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, Well, I teach philosophy at Princeton. Um, The subject I'm mostly interested in is evolution and of all kinds, molecular evolution, human evolution, uh, cultural evolution, everything connected to evolution. Uh, and I don't know what else there is to tell except uh, before I was a philosopher, I was uh, a hedge fund manager. <laughs> and that's sort of the whole story.
0: That's a, that's an unusual background. Um, but we won't go into that right now. We'll get right into the
1: meat of the book. Why did you write this book? Well, it's really it's an attempt to say something about cultural evolution, uh, which is a sort of a thing that's been hanging around for 30 or 40 years now. So it was really an attempt to to get the right theory of cultural evolution. I've been thinking about it uh, for a long time, and I had some ideas about that, and I thought I could use language as a test case to see if uh, the ideas were workable, and uh, that's why I wrote it. Mm-hmm. So before
0: we get into your theory, um, let's talk a little bit about the, um, I guess, it's really, I was going to say philosophical, but it's also anthropological and it's also linguistic and it's also historical. And I know that there are, uh, for example, physical anthropologists out there measuring um, ancient uh, jawbones and things. Um, so it, a, a lot of disciplines are working on the topics of the origins of language and the evolution of language and the current evolution of language. So could you tell us a little bit about the, I guess, to put it bluntly, the the theories you're arguing against, or theory you're arguing against, or that you would like to elaborate?
1: Well, um, I mean, I guess there are two sets of theories I might be thinking about. One is theories about the origin of language, um, and the other is uh, theories about cultural evolution. On the origin of language, we don't really have a story about that um, right at the moment what we sort of have are two conflicting stories that don't exactly go together. Um, There's a story about uh, how signaling systems evolve in the rest of nature, signaling between bacteria or between genes in a cell. We understand that fairly well. We can make computer models of it. um, And sort of one direction the, the theory of the origin of language is going is to try and assimilate human language to that model. Uh, on the other hand, there are the psychologists and the people who study chimpanzees who uh, seem to be arguing that human communication is a lot more c- complicated than communication between bacteria, that people are doing something that involves sort of modeling each other's minds uh, in some fairly complicated way that like bacteria aren't doing and that you don't, you won't have a, a full account of, of the origin of human language Until uh, you have an account of that, people like Michael Michael Tomasello uh, have been arguing this. And so the book is really an attempt to reconcile these two approaches. It's an attempt to take the sort of computer modeling and evolutionary game theory approach that uh, works so well with bacteria and with genes signaling other genes and to try and uh, figure out what needs to be added to it Mm -hmm. to make it an adequate account of human communication And I guess the big sort of striking insight uh, that drove the writing of the book is that what you really need to add to the story about bacteria to make it into a story about humans is you need to add teaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, And once you understand the psychology of teaching and the sort of cultural evolutionary effects of teaching, you have a model that works much better for
0: for humans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could we start by talking about some of the terms that we have already been using. And one of them is signal. What is a signal? One of the questions I've always had when I've read the literature about this, both in linguistics and philosophy, is the difference between a signal and a mechanism. It seems they both communicate something. They both do something to something else. So maybe you could just talk about that a little
1: bit. Well, a signal in the least demanding sense. Um, I I think the paradigmatic case for this, the case we ought to think about, is uh, flowers signaling to bees that they have nectar available uh, there isn't any intention on the part of the flower, and there isn't really any intention on the part of the bee. It's just that uh, one day, um, some plant that had sap seeping from it happened to have a part that was bright red next to that, and some insect was attracted to the color and got the sap and pollinated the plant. Mm-hmm. And so just by random chance, just by some fortuitous circumstance, a kind of a conditioned response, a pure reflex uh, form of communication evolved between the, the bee and the plant, where uh, the plant got brighter, more and more brightly colored, because that was attractive to bees, and the bees got more and more interested in brightly colored things, because they started being regularly associated with nectar. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I mean by a signal. It's just uh, something that's passed between two entities, organisms, I guess, um, that that. Uh, modifies the behavior of one. This is this is Brian Skirm's definition of mm-hmm. the signal. Mm-hmm. It modifies the behavior of one. It makes it act differently than it otherwise otherwise would have behaved. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you know, most of, there's an awful lot of signaling in, inside of cells. Um, if you, you eat, you know, some different type of uh, food, if, you, if your cells need to the, change the type of, well, I don't think humans do this, but if a cell needs to change the type of... Uh, Sugar, it's suggesting one gene sends a signal to another gene to produce a different enzyme. Um, that's that's kind of that's kind of signaling. And the the problem philosophers have with that as a model of human language is that there's no intentionality involved. There doesn't seem to be any, be any thought involved. There's no kind of uh, taking account of the context in which uh, the signal is being sent. The signal just has one fixed, uh, rigid meaning. There's sort of no interpretation involved. There's no conversation. There are no questions. There's just a signal passing from one bacterium to another bacterium that changes its behavior. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So you've already described how that kind of thing can evolve through na- natural selection. Let's uh, shift a little bit toward mm, this other kind of signaling. I guess it's the same kind of signaling. What What, what do uh, the people who think about this think about the ways uh, humans evolved linguistic
1: signaling. Right. Well, the, the really striking thing about humans, already before you get to language, um, human children who, who human babies and, and small children behave very differently than, than chimpanzee children. And the really the most striking difference between um, humans and chimpanzees, and this is maybe sort of a, a clue to what's uniquely going on with humans that isn't going on with bacteria, is that uh, a chimpanzee finds it almost impossible to understand indicative pointing. Uh, if you point something out to a chimpanzee, he can't understand that. Mm-hmm. He can understand that if you're reaching for something that you want, he can understand that there's something good. But if you're disinterestedly pointing out something over in some corner of the room that would be good for him, uh, he can't get that, and he can't be taught to get that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the the question is, and humans can get it almost right away. I mean, even before they can uh, talk or walk or anything, infants are trying to follow people's gaze. And humans are extremely sensitive to where other humans are trying to uh, direct their attention. So the question is really what's driving uh, this extremely striking difference in behavior that no matter how many times you point something out to a chimpanzee, he can't uh, seem to seem to understand that you're you're trying to help him. Mm-hmm. And what seems to be the problem um, from the chimpanzee's point of view is that it's just impossible for him to imagine your motive. It's impossible for him to imagine that someone might be trying to help him, because chimpanzees don't really cooperate. Uh, each chimpanzee is kind of on his own. Um, and and the, the idea of, uh, for example, carrying something together. Two chimpanzees can't do that. If it's something that they both want, they'll fight over it. Um, they can't carry it. So the, what's very basic to human communication seems to be some kind of idea about cooperation, mm-hmm. uh, about having common interests and people assuming that if uh, someone is trying to direct their attention towards something, it's probably... Uh, a reason they should attend to it, that it's in their interest to attend to it. Uh, and what goes along with that, I think, is a lot of, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we make a big deal about theory of mind, about being able to imagine someone else's mental state. But I think really what's going on uh, with humans is something a bit more complicated than that because we're not only interested in uh, the mental states of the people around us, which is something that a chimpanzee can think about, we're also interested in what they think of us Um, and that seems to be a big striking feature of human communication is that a lot of the the messages um, they're hard to get without going through three or four layers of reasoning Mm -hmm. like if you just call someone's name uh, if you say Bill uh, the person has to figure out uh, that by saying his name you intend that he should recognize that you want him to look at you, Um, it's sort of a complicated chain of reasoning. Um, But this is something that humans do, that the chimpanzees don't. Or when a police officer uh, turns on a siren for a second to get you to stop. To understand that, you have to understand the officer intends you to recognize that he's sending you a message that you ought to stop. So you have to think about what he thinks about you and what he thinks your state of mind should be and how he thinks you should respond to the signal, Mm -hmm. then chimpanzees don't seem to do anything like that. So, you know, the, the, the sort of the thought at the heart of the book is that humans are cultural creatures and culture has to be passed from generation to generation, and a lot of stuff has to be taught. And it's in teaching situations in particular that the task of figuring out what somebody else knows that you don't know or what somebody else doesn't know that you know that you could tell him. It's in teaching situations in particular that this kind of recursive uh, way of thinking about other people's minds is functional, is necessary. Um, And that seems to be the really distinctive thing about human communication is that it plays a role in teaching. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'm very glad to hear what you have to say about chimpanzees. This is something I've argued in my own writing. They are really not very cooperative at all and they're particularly not cooperative compared to humans. For example, they almost never share food. You'd think that would be like the most basic metric for cooperation, but they don't do that. Um, it seems to me that some of what you say, and I'm trying to recall these uh, folks, uh, is is similar to a, a theory of the evolution of language, I think that is attributed to um, uh, Wilson and Sperber. Is that right? The, the, it's, it's called the... Um, the the uh the relevance theory of language do you know this
1: do you know exactly yeah what? well yeah. there there's, there's a lot of um work by people like Sperber um, uh-huh. recently on on the whole topic of relevance and salience uh there's also a nice new book by Stahlmacher out on context um and it all sort of goes back really to um some stuff that's quite a lot older some stuff from the 50s and 60s Seventies. it all goes back to, uh, to Grice, most of all. Oh, really? Yeah, the I guess it's yeah, yeah. It's, speaker's meaning. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh,
0: well, I was going to say, I read a book by a fellow named Jean-Louis Desals uh, that is, I think, built on Sperber's work, and he uh, elaborates uh, at, at great length uh, what an evolutionary theory about the origins of language would look like in terms of relevance. And, and I mean, I found it very convincing. I don't know if you're familiar with it.
1: Right, so so what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to take the micro-theory that these guys have of the psychology of communication, and I'm trying to turn it into a macro-theory about, okay, if this is the mechanism people have for transmitting culture from generation to generation, what does that tell us about human culture and how it evolves? And what does that tell us about uh, human nature? So this stuff about relevance, um, it's important to me because it tells me things about... Um, what the function of human linguistic communication is and how it evolved and uh, and uh, you know sort of what we do with it, but what i 'm really interested in is the aggregate long term effects over time of people communicating in this way
0: mhm mm-hmm. yeah and and here we come right up against the as you put it the sort of second part of the book, and that is a theory of um, Cultural evolution or uh, linguistic evolution, I guess one stands as a proxy for another. Can you go ahead and talk about that then?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, language is a type of culture. I would think that this is obvious because you (laughs) learn it from other people. Yeah. Yeah. And so the question is, it's a pretty well-defined type of culture. There are these units, words, like there's the word tomorrow or there's the word yesterday. Um, and they get passed from people to people, and they actually move from language to language. So you really ought to be able to get um, a theory of cultural evolution by looking at how words evolve. And if you have a good theory of cultural evolution, then it ought to, it ought to work as an analysis of the way words evolve. It ought to sort of um, fit well with, with uh, the facts that we see of the way words evolve. And I think the, the you know the so the question is how did the words in the English language, for example, how did they get to mean what they they mean, um, and how do those meanings get passed from generation to generation? And I think what a lot of people are working with unconsciously as a as a theory of this is some form of behaviorism that we just grow up as children and we hear certain sounds associated with certain objects or certain actions. And we sort of register those uh, correlations, those, those, those coincidences, on some sort of semi-unconscious level. And then from that, we learn what the meaning of the word is. And uh, then, we, then, we, uh, then we know it. This is the story about language learning that uh, Wittgenstein attributes to St. Augustine at the beginning of, of uh, philosophical investigations. But the problem is that that won't really work. Um, as a theory of the cultural evolution of words, there's a couple of different things wrong with it. One really obvious thing that's wrong with it is there's no story about how noise is is dealt with. There's no story about if something goes wrong in the transmission of an item of culture, if somebody learns the meaning of a word incorrectly, uh, how does that get fixed? Does he just go around using the word in his own idiosyncratic way and uh, never really correct that or, or... in general, how does it work out that we all end up attributing the same meaning to words? How, how do we end up... Uh, how doesn't that get randomized? How doesn't each person, over time, sort of develop his own idea of what each word means? <laughs> and the, the, the solution in philosophy, you know, David Lewis's solution to this problem, um, sort of in a, in a static way, in a non-evolutionary context, was to say, no... Um, The meanings of words are conventions, and you're obliged to stick to the convention. Your using language involves sort of um, representing that you're going to be using the word in the same way as uh, the other people, as the people around you. Um, So, you know, there's a force pushing words back into shared meanings, because people will actually reproach each other if if, uh, they use words in the wrong way. If I use the word gold... To refer to lead, uh, people will complain about that to me. You know, so 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 kind of the story. Since uh, Lewis wrote in the in the late 1960s, has been that the, the the meanings of words are conventional. But then um, it's pretty obvious that there's some sense in which um, conventions uh, rise and fall. Um, like uh, you know, if you just think about. Uh, men's clothing or women's clothing uh, the conventions and requirements of what people were supposed to wear a century ago aren't identical to excuse me to the conventions that that people have to follow today so the question if you if you believe that the meanings of words are conventional is how do conventions evolve how do conventions change in a in a in a human society over time what is actually the, the process going on there? Um, and sort of, uh, I guess, my contribution to the discussion is to say, well, if you look carefully at the, the um, idea of, of uh, social practices as conventions or words, the meanings of words as conventional, um, what you can see is that it's sort of, uh, in a way, identical to Darwin's theory of domestication. That uh, if we want to think of words as being Conventional, if we want to think of the meanings of words as being conventional and we want to think of cultural evolution as being the rise and fall of conventions, then we're sort of forced into a domestication theory of the evolution of culture. Mm-hmm.
0: So could you talk a little bit about what domestication means in terms of Darwin's theory? I think you know our audience is generally familiar with what is domestication in particular?
1: Right, Well, Darwin was interested in proving that evolution happens. And um, what he pointed to was the evolution of domesticated animals, cows and dogs and things like that. Um, he pointed to all the dog breeds, you know, you have greyhounds and dachshunds, and they all seem like uh, very specialized tools for particular purposes, and they're, they're evolving visibly before our eyes. The breeds are changing um, over historical term, over historical time. So sort of the first and foremost um, use he made of domestication was simply to prove that evolution is possible, that it's something that can happen. Uh, but then he, he actually um, was interested in it for reasons other than that. He keeps talking about it um, in the decades after Origin of Species. Uh, and whenever he brings up uh, domestication subsequently, very often it's in the context of, of uh, <clears throat> making some comparison either to fashion the evolution of victorian uh, fashions or uh, fashions in other societies around the world or else um or else um he's 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 uh, comparing it to sexual selection he's comparing it to um the way peahens mm-hmm. uh pick which peacock peacock to to have babies with mm-hmm. um you know and the story is always well uh, like, in, there's a very interesting thing in Descent of Man. He's interested in the question of how did people get to um, have the habit of putting huge plates in their lower lips. You know, there are three different groups of people in different parts of the world who have invented the custom of putting an enormous plate in their lower lip. You know, distending their lower lip and making it into this big circular thing. Mm-hmm. And Darwin was interested in the question of how the heck did anybody did it ever occur to anybody to do that. And uh, wouldn't it have seemed grotesque to them? Uh, why, would, why would someone do that to their kid? How, how do people get to uh, be doing things like that? And his idea about it, he said, well, it's just like the evolution of a domesticated animal or plant. It starts out being fairly plain looking, but uh, the fancier, the admirer of this particular kind of animal or plant, what he always wants to see in each generation is a slight exaggeration of the characteristic features and through a long series of slight exaggerations, uh, you tend to end up with ornamental plants and, and they're quite exaggerated uh, indeed. And his, Darwin says, why can't, you know, the same thing seems to be happening with human fashions, that what people always want is something that's just a little bit more like the characteristic thing. If people are wearing bright colors this year, then people want a color that's just a little bit brighter than the shade everybody else is wearing. So, his idea about the huge plate in, in the person's lower lip is that um, that probably got the way it was by a series of small incremental exaggerations. Um, um, you know, people started out just putting a little thing in their lower lip to make themselves look kind of attractive, but then they started competing with each other, and in each generation they wanted a little bit more. And uh, after 10,000 years of that, the the, the, the custom gets very extreme and exotic. And sort of my thought about that when I read um, what Darwin had to say about it, when he when I read this comparison um, between the cultural evolution of this kind of personal ornament and the evolution of animals and plants under domestication, my thought was, well, if that's the way personal ornamentation has evolved in human societies, uh, and we can easily spot that in cases where the personal ornamentation has become kind of grotesque, then... Shouldn't I, couldn't I be surrounded by all kinds of things that aren't grotesque um, and that don't leap out as, as weird and non-functional, but that must have evolved in more or less the same way? Mm-hmm. Um, people engage in a lot of practices that, to me, seem to be pretty wise, seem to be pretty good ideas. And often the person can't explain why the thing that he's doing is, a, is a, the right thing to do, certainly in the case of words. Um, people have trouble explaining why they use words the way that they do. Um, and so there's some kind of uh, optimality in, in our culture, and words and other items of culture, that isn't the product of the individual users being super smart. And so the idea is, well, couldn't that optimality have gotten there? Couldn't the words have been optimized as tools for human activities in the same way that doxins got optimized? Mm-hmm as tools for human activities, just because each successive user um, picked the one that was the variant that was the best for the task that he had at hand. Mm -hmm. And and through a long, long series of successive users, the thing got very finely honed and very finely polished. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you adopt that as kind of a general theory of uh, human culture or human language, um, then there end up being really kind of striking consequences for the way you would expect language and culture to evolve. Um, it seems like a, a very small incremental move to say, well, we already know that some sort of cultural evolution is happening because, uh, uh, after all, language has changed, so why can't we think of this in terms of domestication? But the whole thing about evolution is that the trick isn't just having the theory that things evolve. The trick is having the right theory of evolution. You know, people knew before Darwin... Um, that things were sort of evolving somehow, but until you until you have the the details right, the theory doesn't really have much predictive power. And it seems to me that this is a this is a pretty small move. It's just taking up an idea of Darwin's, but that you get an enormous amount of predictive power out of it. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, I see. Um, I have a bunch of questions. One is just terminologically, um, is domestication the same thing that is sometimes called unnatural selection, that is uh, intentional selection?
1: Well, it's artificial selection. Okay. Um, Darwin often was careful to use the term unconscious artificial selection. Okay. Uh, because his idea is that uh, no one is trying to improve the dachshund. Uh, people are just keeping the best dachshunds every, in every generation. Mm-hmm. So he wants, to, he wants to stress the idea that um, no one has to have a rational plan of, after several thousand years, producing a dachshund or a greyhound. I see. Uh, but it is artificial selection. And I think what's, what's really distinctive about this is a biological phenomenon. Like If you look at the relationship between people and dogs, um, what's kind of unusual about that, it's, it's, a, it's a mutualism. You know, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. But what's unusual about it in the context of symbiotic relationships generally is that it's one-sided. People can live without dogs, but domesticated dogs cannot live without people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sort of means that we have all the power in the relationship. Uh, it, we don't have to have a dog, and we don't have to have this particular breed of dog. But, but chihuahuas will not survive in the wild. Unless people choose to keep chihuahuas, there won't be any chihuahuas. Mm-hmm. So um, part of the explanation for the rapidity of, and, uh, of evolution under um, domestication it's just that there's this incredible power asymmetry that doesn't exist in most uh, symbiotic relationships.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to belabor the point if I'm belaboring it. So then there are three kinds of evolution we're talking about here. One is natural selection. One is artificial selection. So, for example, intentional artificial selection. So, breeding a sheep for its wool intentionally. Mm-hmm. And then there's this third kind which is unconscious intentional or artificial selection.
1: Yeah, well, it's a matter of degree. I mm-hmm. mean, I mean uh, how... Thoroughly, has the person conceptualized the task of breeding the sheep for its wool? Mm -hmm. Some people who breed sheep are thinking about the sheep's chromosomes. Some people are just thinking that they want a nice-looking sheep. Some people aren't thinking at all. Um, You know, the the key thing that all three groups of people share is just that they have a veto over the reproduction of the sheep, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that if they uh, don't want this particular sheep to reproduce they can stop that, and if they do want more lambs from this particular sheep, they have a way of getting that to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I see. So to go back to the what we might call, the I'm a historian, so the historical narrative, I, I, I think that your theory gets us from a proto-language, whatever that might be, and I'm I'm not clear on it, to uh, what we see today, which is an incredibly complex thing, um, in the sense that there is a, a kind of, mm, I don't know, the economists, what do they call it, a secular... A tendency here toward complexity. So in your narrative, is this the result of, and I hope I'm using these terms right, um, what we might call costly signaling or uh, uh, a sort of um, sexual selection, or is it, the, is it the result of something else?
1: There's a big sexual selection component, but I don't think that that's what gets the process started. Um, to think about human evolution, I think you actually have to think about a couple of different phases. Um, there's the phase where we sort of initially become very different from chimpanzees. Um, and then there's kind of a million-year period where not much <laughs> happens, where we're making hand axes. Uh, and then there's another phase at the end where we go from whatever we were then to, to modern humans. Mm-hmm. Um, the the drive towards complexity, it, it seems to me that there's two things uh, at work here. First of all, if you if you look at what chimpanzees are doing and you look at what humans are doing, um, you can see that there's a, a pretty straightforward innovation uh, or change in the, in the human case that's going to have all kinds of consequences. Because the chimpanzees aren't teaching each other. A chimpanzee mother, she, chimpanzees have a sort of culture. They have tools. They, they use rocks to break open nuts. But a chimpanzee mother will sit there for hour after hour after hour as her child tries to break open a nut with a rock. And doing it incorrectly, and she'll sort of, sort of incuriously look over at him, and she'll, it'll never occur to her to intervene and to show him the right way to do it. Maybe occasionally, you know, some chimpanzee genius has this idea, but it's not a routine part of chimpanzee parenting to interfere with what the kid is doing and, and show them um, the right way of doing it. And with humans, it, it very much is. Humans uh, show each other how to do things. So if you just take that as the, the, the primitive difference um, and ask where that that uh, that would get you, uh, if you, if you just took chimpanzees, for example, and you somehow made them into teachers, you gave them some teaching instinct, what it gets you is a much greater uh, fidelity of transmission of culture from generation to generation. So the problem with noise... Is uh, greatly reduced, and it also gives the adult an opportunity to weed out behaviors that seem um, wrong or or maladaptive. Um, so the problem of of you know cultural behaviors, it's not necessarily the case that they're going to be benign. There could be uh, cultural behaviors that just have the the uh, that that just exists to propagate themselves, some kind of noisy uh, display, you know, that's very time-consuming and takes a lot of energy, but is really persuasive and convincing, and is good at getting individuals to imitate it. Um, but if you if you you know, so culture without teaching, um, there's there's a lot of reason to worry that what you're going to end up with is is pathogenic culture. You're going to end up with culture that's good at spreading itself. It doesn't do anything for the organism that carries it. Once you have teaching, there's an opportunity um, for an adult to spot incorrect versions of behaviors as they emerge and weed them out. And that means that um, just as your your immune system protects your your the cells in your body against pathogens, um, individuals in a human society have some sort of protection against maladaptive. Uh, Cultural behaviors, and these two things together—the higher fidelity and the existence of a sort of an immune system in the in the form of the teacher weeding things out—they mm-hmm. mean that you can uh, maintain a lot more culture um, without the, the 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 without your culture be, becoming uh, hopelessly burdensome to you. It, mm-hmm. it means that uh, that the, the sheer amount of uh, practices that can be transmitted from generation to generation in a human group becomes a lot larger and that was enough to make us into something very different from a chimpanzee that was enough to, to, to make us into the sort of creature that can make a hand axe and make fire and hunt large animals mm-hmm. but then the, the full modern human thing um, you know the, the, the sort of sprint to modern humans in the last half million years, that seems to be something different. That seems to be associated, uh, above all, in my mind, with um, the origins of art, because uh, that's really being pushed back in time now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're starting to find evidence of face painting that's four or 500,000 years old. and uh, In Indonesia, there was just a seashell discovered that's uh, half a million years old that has patterns carved into it. So... Um, what we're starting to realize now, just on the basis of this new archaeology, is that you can't think of the arts as something that come at the end of human evolution, as sort of the, the culmination and product of human evolution. Arts, painting your face, that must have been uh, an important driving force in in producing humans as they are today, because we were already doing it uh, well before we, we became exactly modern humans. Yeah, yeah. And. Yeah. I was going to say, I think a lot of people have the
0: same uh, feeling, a lot of people who study this you have the same feeling that you do about the, the dating of these artifacts uh, by archaeological, uh, the archaeological record, because, you know, the anthropologists, the physical anthropologists will say, you know, behaviorally modern humans are 180,000 years old, but we find the first, you know, uh, f- first bit of art uh, 40,000 years ago, and this doesn't seem to make sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's, there's African stuff from the Middle Stone Age, like there's a site called Kabwe in Zambia now, um, where they've been finding face paint, mm-hmm. uh, red ochre that people use for coloring their faces still in the area. Uh, they've been finding face paint, huge deposits of material used for mm-hmm. face paint that are four, 400,000 years wow. old. Yeah, wow. So we've, we've, we've really pushed it back. Um, quite a lot in time, and, and, and to, you know, the question is what's, what was going on in this, this final phase of human evolution, and sort of my theory about it is that if you think of um, human beings as creatures who, their unique adaptation is that they're capable of domesticating items of culture, that they're capable of, you know, the tradition of making some particular kind of hand axe that um, in the same way that a breed of dogs is, is cultivated within a human group and passed from generation to generation, this hand axe style, it's the same kind of thing. People are selecting the best hand axes to copy in each generation, and uh, the hand axe is gradually sort of getting more and more perfect, more and more the, the, the way that people want it. My idea is that if, if, if uh, that's the human thing, then at some point, um, the ability to do that well, the ability to pick up culture from the previous generation, and sort of the ability to make a hand axe well would have become sexy mm-hmm. um, because it shows that you're, you can learn. And it may also, for humans, it may show that there was some investment of parental attention um, towards the end of the Atulian, when, with the period where they're just really making hand axes and not that much else towards the end of that period, the hand axes, they don't get any better functionally, but they start to get really, really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, They begin to be polished and and very carefully um, made. And then right after that, you you get um, face painting. And and, uh, then after you get face painting, you start to get the explosion of different kinds of material culture. People invent string and fish hooks and things like that. So, You know, if you just want to tell a straightforward narrative about that, it's that people are cultural creatures, making hand axes is a kind of culture. Uh, At some point it became really sexy to produce a really good, polished, beautiful hand axe because it showed that your parents had put effort into teaching you how to make hand axes. And then sexual selection takes over. There's this small advantage to preferring the mate who can make a really great hand axe but then, you know, the, the, the self-reinforcing um, part of it is that as as um, that gene spreads through the population, it carries the preference for, for mates who can make nice hand axes along with it. Mm-hmm. So there's a sort of a positive feedback process where the preference is spreading the trait, and the trait is spreading the preference.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you look at modern humans... Um, um, they the human brain, it seems to me, it's like the peacock's tail. It's a big, fancy, elaborate structure um, that's way, way beyond what the animal would actually need for any practical purpose in nature that's evolved uh, just as a result of um, a series of incremental exaggerations because at each point, the taste for for more complexity, was being carried along with the complexity itself. Mm-hmm. It really looks very much like the, the last 500,000 years is one of these runaway sexual selection processes that mm-hmm. you find in other kinds of animals. And it really looks as if um, what, um, what, peop- what the runaway sexual selection was for was for the ability to carry culture and transmit culture. You know, mm-hmm. If you look at modern human beings, the courtship practices... Uh, or even the way they have sex um, there 's an enormous amount of um, cultural learning that goes into say being able to put on makeup really well mm-hmm. uh, or being able to dress really nicely or being able to dance nicely or to play a musical instrument mm-hmm. um, and it, it seems to me that it's it's it 's just simply the ability to to carry that off. Mm-hmm. Um, that's most sexy in, in modern humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um,
0: t- to ask, I, I think this might be a simplistic question, but I, I just want to hear the answer. The, the, uh, I guess the simplest uh, description of evolution, that is the evolutionary mechanism I've ever heard, is um, variation with selective retention. In your theory, where does the variation come from?
1: Um, well, there's two kinds of variation that you want to think about. There's variation in the cultural behaviors, and then there's variation in the human individuals who are, who are doing them. Um, the variation in the cultural behaviors, you know, it's, it's, it's just that um, that uh, at some point uh, different, everybody was trying to make hand axes and some of the people were making really nice ones and some of the people were making kind of ugly ones. You, you get variation <laughs> in the cultural behaviors just because everybody tries to do it right but not everybody gets it right. Um and for language today you can see that there's still variation in the in the cultural component of language because people get slightly different ideas about the meanings of words and they argue about the meanings of words and people learn words wrong. So there's there's mutation in the cultural behaviors. That's just taken care of because the the fidelity of transmission isn't isn't uh isn't uh, perfect. And you know then the 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 selection the the winnowing of of the variation to find improvements, um, what I guess I'm arguing is that there there are two sort of different processes there. There's a survival selection process in which it's just a good thing uh, to be able to make a bow and arrow or because it will save your life in some circumstance. But Darwin didn't think that was enough to explain the evolution of human intelligence. Darwin thought that they were smarter than, people were smarter than they needed to be, uh, just to survive as hunter-gatherers, But there's no reason people need all this elaborate music and art, uh, and the ability to think about distant galaxies, and all this strange human stuff. So his idea, which I'm kind of trying to revive, is that there had to be a second uh, selective force operating in the human case, that there had to be... um, uh, kind of a, a second order thing of not just uh, what makes humans survive but also what humans prefer in other humans, um, what people prefer in their mates um, and and sort of that those are the, those are the things that are that are driving the evolution of the culture, and then what 's driving the evolution of the the underlying human organism is just simply that it 's both practically useful and, and also attractive uh, to be able to use culture. Um, and so people are, were selected you know, over a long period of time for their ability to show off the, mm-hmm. their cultural skills, their acquired mm-hmm. skills. It, it makes it look as if um, you're going to be good. If you can play the piano really well, it makes it look as if you're maybe going to be a good parent uh, because your parents must have lavished a lot of effort on trying to get you to play the piano when you were a little kid and you didn't really want to do it. And so we can tell that you, you are come from some sort of tradition of people who invest a lot of effort in uh, their kids and in a human being that's, uh, that's very attractive. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that the appearance of humans
0: uh, with the culture-producing and culture-bearing and culture-winnowing uh, abilities, right, is it proper to speak of, I don't know if this is right, um, cultural fitness? I mean, the thing that makes it better is, in fact, better cultural fitness, and I don't know what that would mean exactly. Can you talk a little bit about that, or is that just loopy?
1: Well, I mean, I mean uh, are we talking about the fitness of the culture itself? No, we're talking about
0: the, the fitness of, that the individual has in cultural terms. You know, you can play the piano, I can't.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the, sort of the, the way to think about that is it, it's a lot more complicated than this. Um, But I think the way to think about this is simply um, in terms of sexual selection, that where the rubber hits the road, um, where it ends up making a difference to gene frequencies in the next generation, is if my ability to play the piano is is somehow attractive uh, or gets me status, which is attractive, Mm -hmm. um, that that, uh, the way um, the ability to perform that skill really well uh, is going to, is going to affect gene frequencies in the next generation is you're a rock star and everybody thinks <laughs> that's incredibly sexy and, and you have groupies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, that be, because it's really kind of mysterious. How, how could people ever have evolved the ability to do complex mathematics? How, how did we become the sort of creature that can come up with general relativity and quantum mechanics, there can't have been any selection for that. Mm -hmm. Um, The chimpanzees can't have been sitting around doing number theory um, and giving each other the Fields medal. And, and, you know, (laughs) that just wasn't happening. So what is happening in a a Stone Age society that would have resulted in selection for the kind of cognitive abilities that go into being able to do mathematics? Well, if you look at hunter-gatherers, what's really striking about them is that the music for example will be way 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 more complicated uh, than you would than you would suspect than you would assume um that even even people with very simple material cultures have elaborate myth systems of myth and elaborate kinds of music and 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 uh, dance and various other art forms so um the thought is just that the mathematical ability is kind of a side effect of the musical ability, and that uh, if you look at what the musical ability, why would somebody spend 10,000 hours uh, practicing a musical instrument? Really, the most practical thing you can think of about that is that
0: it's sexy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that is a kind of, I had never thought about it like this, but particularly being a rock star, that is definitely costly signaling, because those people die young. They get laid a lot. But they die young, so it's a yeah, very costly yeah. signal to send.
1: <laughs> well, it's costly and it's impossible to fake. Yeah, um, if you didn't, if you didn't really spend the time practicing the guitar, um, then like you can prance around on stage, but it's not going <laughs> to sound like anything.
0: I mean, and you can say the same thing about going to Juilliard and putting yourself in a room with a piano forever. And I know people who've done that. Um,
1: right. Right, that it's the, the, the you know or or math ability that it's, you, you can't fake that. It yeah. means that your parents really forced you to do a bunch of stuff that was sort of unnatural for this this little kid who's basically just a wild animal. It's funny, you and that's that,
0: yeah.
1: that's incredibly impressive in a human being that yeah. that much parental effort. And you know, I mean, I mean uh, this this emphasis on learning being. Sexy, or the ability to learn being sexy it's a thing that even extends uh, to the way people have sex. Um, there are skills involved. this is unique. Uh, other animals don't have to learn how to have sex.
0: Uh-huh.
1: but humans when you start out when they start out, they're awkward, then they learn to be better at it. Um, you can do a better job or a worse job. And it's a nonverbal learning situation. Mm-hmm. You're learning what your 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 lover likes in a way that doesn't involve that much discussion. So, in a way, human sex replicates the situation that human babies are in, mm-hmm. uh, where they don't have language yet, and they need to develop a close emotional relationship with their parents and learn all kinds of things from them in a sort of nonverbal or preverbal way. So, if somebody is you know good at Sex, the human type of sex, it probably means that their the babies they produce will be good at being human babies mm-hmm. uh, so this is a thing that that really kind of uh, uh permeates every aspect of human biology once you notice it um it 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 it's really striking how 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 much human behavior is about teaching and teachability mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the ability to learn from other people. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, and
0: I can't speak for you, but occasionally in my life, I've had this realization that there was something profoundly strange going on in my kind of maniacal pursuit of something. I remember I used to do athletics a lot, and I remember in high school just thinking to myself, I can't believe they're making us do this, and I can't believe I'm doing it. You know, Because it, right. it was brutal and hard, and it didn't seem to have any payoff. Like what right. is going on out here?
1: <laughs> well, an awful lot of human culture has that character, yeah. Like they can't possibly expect us to do this. It's impossible. Or what the fuck is the point of all this? You know, people people wear neckties. Yeah. No one can explain to you why you're supposed to wear the necktie. Yeah. But you really have to
0: wear it. No, it's true. You're quite you're quite right about that. I think we put adolescence through that kind of stuff quite a bit. But I know that, you know, There's a sort of, I don't know if it's a religious angle or a philosophical angle or a, I don't know, but, you know, the, I mean, Epicureans or Buddhists or something who, you know, point this out constantly that we're in search of something. They would say we're clinging to something, we're working on something that just is insignificant and we don't realize it because we're playing this game and we need to back away from that. But it's a very hard thing to do and it's fun to play the game. Um, I, I asked my students recently if they could think of any reason why somebody wouldn't want an A in a class. And they couldn't think of any. I'm like, well, what if somebody doesn't care about grades? Well, it's, and there's absolutely just, foreign to them.
1: <laughs> it's not just fun to care about the grade. Um, it's, it's, I, I think about this in a very different way than I did before the, I wrote the book. It's rude not to care whether you get an A. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Um, because what you're saying, if you go into the class and you do B work, even though you could get an A, mm-hmm. is you're saying your opinion is of no consequence to mm-hmm. me. I don't care what your evaluation of me is mm-hmm. and which is which is a very insulting thing to say to a human being, so trying to excel is a compliment to the audience, mm-hmm. and the audience is going to take it that way, and it's going to take not trying to excel as an insult, so really it's not um when you're dealing with human beings this this thing of showing off and and uh, being charming and being reassuring, it's not, it's not optional. It's obligatory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's insulting if you don't do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the thing I was trying to get at is that many
0: of the world religions sort of stress that uh, the world, as we understand it, is a kind of veil of tears. And uh, we will suffer here because we uh, have to grow the peacock's tail. And most of us won't.
1: There's there's a tendency to to want to retreat into the sort of chimpanzee side of your personality and say, well, all this hard, abstract, crazy stuff that nobody can explain to me, it's all sort of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like, can I just uh, go back into some sort of animal self and only do stuff that makes sense to me? you know, eat and drink and do other things that I have straightforward natural urges to do, mm-hmm. um, isn't it kind of a sad thing that everybody is running around doing these senseless conventional activities? Mm-hmm. And I guess my my position is I want to push back against that. I want mm-hmm. to say, no, it's not a sad thing that people are dressing up in fashionable clothes or trying to eat uh, carefully prepared food or playing piano sonatas or wearing neckties. Mm-hmm. That stuff—it um, only seems sad and pointless if you don't understand the reason people are doing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Once you understand what's going on, you see that they couldn't actually be people at all, mm-hmm. um, unless they had habits like that, and mm-hmm. it all makes more sense to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's a good point, but I—you
0: know—it's—it's it's a sort of—you know—the the world is—you know—the great fetch that you know the world is tough, and uh, this is a tough part of life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, well and and that's what you're constantly up against and evolution is that anything that's really important is going to take everything you have. Yeah. Because uh, stuff is competitive. You're yeah. you're up against other human beings.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It kind of puts things like uh, monasteries in in a new light, doesn't it? It's sort of an escape from all that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the monasteries are incredibly interesting. Yeah, you know yeah. things
0: like that. People are just like I'm not doing this anymore. I'm doing Right,
1: the attempt... The attempt, at the, the people periodically sort of attempt, do attempt to give up on various aspects of being human. And the consequences are always disastrous. Yeah, they and the are. People are always surprised.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they are. I mean, I, I would put, you know, again, I'd, I would put the experiment we call the Soviet Union under that rubric, uh, you know, try to make life not competitive in every possible way. That, that didn't That's an example, out well. or, yeah.
1: or just societies where they don't let people dance, you know?
0: Mm, yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's not a good idea.
0: No, it doesn't ever work out in the long term. You're quite right. So anyway, thanks so much for writing the book, uh, Dan, and thanks for being on the show. We've taken up a lot of your time. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you're
1: working on now? Well, so the first book was using language as an example of cultural evolution and trying to use that to investigate the, the unique uh, aspects of human culture. And now what I'd like to do um, is take a look at the arts and a taste, uh, because we have this philosophical tradition in the West, aesthetics and talking about beauty that doesn't really take account of human nature in any very interesting way. Um, So what I'd like to do is sort of try and think about the evolution of the arts um, in a more organized way and see what that has, try and figure out you know, what that has to do with human sexuality and and, uh, other closely related things. But I basically just want to go and look at all that African Middle Stone Age archaeological Mm -hmm. um, evidence and figure out what I think is happening with the Mm -hmm. origin of the arts.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds fascinating, and I hope you come on the show when you're done.
1: I hope I I have a chance.
0: (laughs) All right. uh, Let me tell everybody that today we've been talking to Dan Cloud about his book, The Domestication of Language, Cultural Evolution, and the Uniqueness of the Human Animal. Dan, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And let me tell everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you as well for tuning in, and I hope you have a great week.